parable of the persistent widow. And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said, In a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says, and will not God give justice to his elect, who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Good morning. If you're new here, welcome. My name's Albert. Um, The way we kind of do our sermons here and our preaching here is we just kind of go chapter by chapter, verse by verse, and just book by book. So we're in Luke chapter 18 this morning, and so that's the text that we're going to be looking at. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Talking about the parable of, of prayer, Lord, may, may you impart to us what you want us to hear. God, I pray that your spirit would minister to people's hearts and spirits this morning, wherever they're at. I know that some people are dealing with some really difficult things. And so, Lord, I pray that you would touch them, that you would use our body to minister to them as well, to show them unconditional love to the extent that humans can. Lord, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy. How much you love us in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, as we study the Bible, it's, it's really important for us to keep in mind what the Bible is saying to us rather than what we want the Bible to say. So to let the Word of God influence our thoughts instead of letting our thoughts influence the Word of God. It's, it's really important to do that. Now, how do we go about doing that? Well, we have to look at things in context. And when we, when looking at a particular verse, so this morning we're looking at verses 1 through 8, when, when we're looking at that, we have to look at kind of what precedes it and what kind of follows those verses. And when looking at a story, what, what happened before that story and what happened after that story, and, and what is the context of a particular story uh, within the entire biblical book? And so when we look at a book, we have to take some things into consideration, things like genre. Was this book written as a narrative? Was it written as a historical account? Was it written as a a epistle? Was it written uh, as a poetry? So we, we have to take all these things into account because as we take these things into account, what's behind the scripture, it helps us to read things within the context and not just interpret it any which way that we want to interpret it. So this is important for us to keep in mind because there are times when we read the scriptures and we think of different stories as entirely separate chunks of text and not together as a united story. And I think this might be happening between the transitions of chapter 17 and chapter 18. Because if you just kind of casually read this, if you just kind of casually read from the end of chapter 17 into the beginning of verse 18, you can look at it as entirely separate stories. Right? You, you, can, you can just do that and be like, oh, they're two separate things. But keep in mind that when Luke wrote this, he, he didn't have separation in mind. 
There weren't these chapter breaks and verse breaks in the Bible. That didn't come till centuries later after Luke wrote this gospel. So what happened at the end of chapter 17, it, it flows right into the beginning of chapter 18. And Luke recorded for us what happened in chapter 17 to provide us a context as to what Jesus' parable on prayer was about in chapter 18. So what's the context that we can derive from chapter 17. Well, you look back to chapter 17, verse 20, and this is what it says. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed. Then you go into verse 22, and Jesus directed his attention to his disciples. So the Pharisees are the ones that ask a question. He gives them a response, and then he directs his response to his disciples. So you see this movement from this Pharisees questioning to him responding to his disciples. And after Jesus gave the disciples some insight at the end of chapter 17 about when the Son of Man will be revealed, he then moved to instruct these disciples. And it's the same audience that he's going to be talking to about this parable of prayer. It's the same audience. It hasn't changed. It is to his disciples. And so he gave them this illustration that they always ought to pray and not lose heart. Right? That's in verse 1. Now why is this important? Because Jesus has been telling his disciples that he's going to be going away. And not that he's just going to be going away, but he's actually going to suffer. He's actually going to be murdered. And that he's going to be buried. Then he's going to resurrect. And he'll be going away for some time after he ascends to heaven. And he doesn't know when he'll return. Only the Father knows. So he told them this parable because he knew them so well. That these guys were going to lose heart. These guys were going to lose heart. And he told them this story so that it would help them in a time of need to be disciples of prayer because there will come a time when these disciples were going to go through the ringer and they were going to lose heart. And in studying the history of the Christian church, I think the disciples remembered this parable. I think it came back to them. And for any of us who may be discouraged, who who may have lost heart or are losing heart, let the Word of God encourage you this morning to pray just as Jesus told His disciples to pray. And He told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. Pray and don't give up. We don't know when Jesus will return. But keep praying and don't lose heart. Now, I don't want to assume that everyone knows what prayer is. So I want to quickly talk about that, and I hope that it'll be helpful. And this isn't some exhaustive list about prayer. We don't have the time to do that. I could do a whole sermon series that lasts for months on the subject of prayer. So this is just a quick kind of highlight as to what prayer is. Number one, prayer is the pouring out of your heart to God. You just flay yourself open and you pour everything out. Psalms 62, verse 8. Trust in Him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before Him. God is a refuge for us. Selah. Everything that you want, you lay before God. You share Him with the things that you desire. Everything. You just pour that all out to Him. Second one. 
submitting my will to God. See, this is how Jesus instructed us to pray in the Lord's Prayer back in Matthew chapter 6, verse 10. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So Jesus himself exercised this in the Garden of Gethsemane when, when he prayed to God in Luke chapter 22, verse 42, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Third point, seeking God's face. What prayer is about? Psalm 27, verse 8. You have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. Now, do you see how this is kind of a two-way communication that's happening here? We're entering into communication with God. It's not a one-way rant that a lot of us are really good at when we're praying. Amen. And God has no chance to respond to you or talk to you or whatever. He's just like... You know how this is because we've all been kids. And so, seeking someone's face. Put yourself in, in child mode for a moment. You're seeking someone's face, someone's seeking your face. Your parent or your guardian or whoever that is. And so, we've all been children who have done performances in school. And so, we're getting on stage and you're in performance. And, and so, we're, we're there and, and it's, it's a sea of children on the stage. But who are you looking for as a child in this audience? You're only looking for one or two people, right? Mom, dad, maybe a sibling, maybe a grandparent, maybe. Well, there's only a few people. And so there's this whole audience. And now some of you are thinking, like, my parents didn't go to anything of mine. I know, mine didn't either. I really empathize with you. I, I remember being selected for, like, a district choir. I know I look like a singer and everything. But um, I was the only one selected from my school. And I'm not saying that I have a good voice now, but back then I must have had something. So they didn't say, seek my face, because they weren't going to be there. My parents didn't issue that to me. They didn't say, seek my face, like God did in Psalms, because they weren't there. But here God is saying, seek my face. I'm here. I'm out there. So look for me. And I remember I was so bummed. I'm on that stage and I was never even given the invitation to seek their face because I knew that they weren't going to be there. And I'm so bummed out. I didn't even bother trying out for the county choir because I was like, what's the purpose? Like, why? The people that say they love me and I love them, like, they're not so... I was so deflated. And so here you have God saying, no, seek my face. I'm here. It's, I'm, not, I'm not absent I should have done this message a few weeks ago when my parents were right there so I could guilt trip them, but no. Um, God tells us to seek His face. And then in response to communication that He initiated, He said to seek His face, then we're to seek His face. And so it's, it's this communication that's going back and forth here. And that's how it is for a kid in their performances at school. You know, my wife and I, we do all that we can to attend everything that our girls do. You know, dance recitals, school performances and singing, everything that they do. And they know that they can seek our face because we've extended that. Look for us. We're, we're going to be out there. Look for us. We're, we're going to be there. And so we've extended ourselves, and in turn, their heart is seeking our face in the sea of people. 
And so God has extended that to all of you. He's saying, seek my face. He's extended that to us. And so there's a sea of kids, and and we're seeking their face, and there's a sea of people in the audience, and they're seeking our face. And you know what? When our eyes meet, that's a magical moment. When you have acknowledged that God is seeking your face, and you seek his, and your eyes meet, that is magical. Just imagine when you meet God. Just put yourself in your place of your kids' shoes and stuff. And, or, or you've probably experienced this already. They see you in that. <gasps> you know, the big smiles. And I, I, I can tell you that they're so excited. You can tell they're so excited because they do that, they do that squirmy cute thing, right? Like, like they're like, honey, do you have to go to the bathroom? The bathroom. So, so it's all that. And, and then I get all excited too and I'm like, you know, all this stuff. And so, no, I really don't do that. But you know what happens to me? My heart gets a little faster. It's like when our eyes meet, it's like, it's like it's, I'm truly excited inside. And then my, you know, my eyes get wide open. Like, you know, my eyes can only get so wide. But, you know, I go, you know. And so, that's another thing to blame my parents for. But you, you see, you see how similar prayer is. You know, that God has told us to seek His face. And we're the kid on stage, and he's, he's out there. And we have all this different stuff that's out there too. But God's the one that's saying, seek my face. And, and when, when our eyes meet, it, it's magical. And to the kid, no one else matters. Nobody else matters. And when we pray, no one else matters. In prayer, no one else matters. I, you know who I want to hear my prayers? I want God to hear my prayers. Why? Because He's omnipotent. He's omnipresent. He is God. He can answer that. If someone hears my prayers, they can answer them anyway. So I don't care if you hear my prayers. I want God to hear my prayers. No one else matters as much for me to see. In my desperation, in my troubles, in my difficulties, it doesn't matter who else. I want God. That's who I want to hear my prayers. And when we connect, it's magical. When God hears my prayers, I'm like, oh, I get all squirmy cute and stuff. And that's partly the reason why people close their eyes when they pray. You know, it, it's because, like, the distractions, and if I close my eyes, it's like, okay, I can focus on you. And it helps us to focus and not get distracted. It, you know, that's not something I advise you to do while you're driving. You know, that's not a smart thing. I need to pray, Lord. You know, it's just. But other times, closing your eyes can be a helpful thing in prayer. To seek His face, and it's not that it's necessary or that's absolutely the absolute posture that you have to take. Because oftentimes I pray with my eyes open. You know, I go on a walk, and I'm just praying, or I do pray in my car a lot, and I'm just driving, and so that's just how it is. A fourth thing about prayer is that it's about sitting in the presence of God. Psalms 27, verse 4. One thing have I asked of the Lord that will I seek after, that I dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in His temple. Just chilling with Jesus. Just kicking it with Christ. How do you do that? How do you do that? Prayer. Prayer. How do we know of the presence of God? It's through prayer. How often do you sit in the presence of God? Is it just before meals? Is it just prior to you going to bed? 
And if that's all it is, how good of a relationship would you have with your spouse or your children or your parents or your friends if that's all that you did was you talked to them for under a minute three, four times a day? Just that's it. Do you think that you'd have a great relationship if that's all you did is you kind of sat with them for those three, four minutes in a day? No way. You would not have a good relationship. How much time do we invest sitting in the presence of God? Just being there with God. And if you don't invest time sitting in the presence of God, is it really that surprising when you feel distant from God? How much time do we invest in our relationship with God? God who is omnipresent and is with us all the time, who is with us at work, He's with us at school, He's with us in our recreation, in our hobbies, who is with us in our low points, in our high points, He's with us through it all. And it's not to say that you have to be talking the whole time while you're in the presence of God. But are you in the presence of God? Do you even know that He's there with you? That He's actually right here, right now? That you're in the presence of God. And it's not because it's a church. It's because He loves you and He desires to be with you. You know, you can be traveling with a loved one and flying clear across the world. And you don't even have to say very much. Right? You don't have to communicate the whole time. But you know that you love each other. You're just in their presence, and you really enjoy one another's company. If you have a great conversation for a couple of hours, then that's great. But those hours that are absent of conversation, you still know that your relationship is great. You're still with each other. Most of the time, you're not talking on those flying across the world trips, right? But you know that the other person is there, and you know that at any time you can just give a little nudge and say like, hey, uh, this was on my mind. Fifthly, feeling the peace of God. This is something that what prayer is about. Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 through 7. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Lift your requests to God in prayer and be thankful for His answers. How can we feel the peace of God? Well, first ask yourself if you even have a relationship with God. Because how can you feel the peace of God if you've never sat down in His presence? How can you sit in the presence of God if you don't seek His face and know that He's there? How can you seek His face if you don't submit your will to God's will? How can you submit your will to God if you haven't brought yourself to the point where you pour your heart to Him? But how can you pour your heart to Him if you don't have a relationship with Him? So people can go through difficult times and they desire peace and they desire all these different things, but whom are they running to? And it's in prayer that we we, we pour out our heart to God, we submit our wills to God, we seek God's face, we sit in the presence of God, and we feel the peace of God, and we pray to Jesus. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. There's only one. So if you're not praying to Him, who are you praying to? 
If you want to talk to God, it's going to be through Jesus. And through Jesus, we pour our hearts out to God. All the desires of our hearts, we pour out to God. And as we pour our requests to God, we submit our wills to God for His will. And as we submit our will, as we seek His face, as we sit in His presence, He gives us His peace. Jesus, the one mediator, the the one high priest... Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. What are we instructed to do in this section of Scripture? It's in verses 14 and 16. Verse 14, let us hold fast to our confession. Verse 16, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. Let us hold fast our confession. What is this confession that we're to hold fast to? It's the claim of Jesus is who he claimed to be. He claimed to be God. And we hold on to that. We hold fast to that confession. Luke wrote in Acts chapter 4, verses 11 through 12, This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. There is no other one. When we pray, it's not about talking to yourself. How many of you find yourself doing that in prayer? You're just really talking to yourself. It's not about deeply thinking. That's a different thing. It's not talking to some random being in the cosmos. Jesus is not one of of many beings in the cosmos. We are to hold fast our confession, and then with confidence through that confession, we can draw near to the throne of grace. It is only through our confession in Jesus that we can approach the throne of grace with confidence because He is the only mediator to mediate between sinful man and a holy God. So now that we've covered prayer just a little bit, I think we have a better foundation as to enter into Luke chapter 18 where we're going to find that God is not like the unjust judge in this parable in Luke chapter 18. Why did Jesus tell this story in Luke 18? It's in verse 1. And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. This is why he's telling them this story. You always pray. Don't lose heart. You guys are going to go through stuff. Some gnarly stuff. And you're going to run, but remember this. Come back. Verses 2 through 5. He said, In a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. How would you like to be judged by someone like this? No fear of God, no respect of man, just someone who shows up. Shows up to kind of their judgment seat and just kind of shows up, not really even doing their job, just showing up. 
Because a judge is supposed to stand for justice. This guy's just showing up. He's not really standing for justice. He's just being there. No compassion. Not seeking justice through. Doesn't really care about anything except that he doesn't want to be bothered by this widow anymore. Just stop bothering me. Now, why does Jesus mention a widow? This is interesting. Because a widow in ancient Israel is essentially nothing. Nobody. It's It's a person with little options. This is a patriarchal society. And when the husband died, what that meant for that widow was social and economic disaster. You're pretty much done. The widow's pretty much done. Especially if she had no children. If she had children, it's a different thing. Now you understand what happened to that woman in Nain when her son died and you see what the tragedy was there, that that was her only son. She was basically done. No one to take care of her. So this is kind of the picture that's being brought here. So if you didn't have children to help take care of you, or the children weren't able to because they were you know, too young, or maybe they had some disability, or for whatever reason. So what would happen is she'd take on all the debts that the husband accrued, but she would lose the person that was actually the main person providing for that. She, she was not the main provider back then. And so, so often the widow would be exploited and they would lose everything because a, a widow wouldn't automatically inherit what her husband left behind. She didn't naturally have those rights. It wasn't like a tenants in common thing like in California. You know, you just pass it off to your spouse. It's not like that back in this day. Usually the dead husband's land was connected to his family, not to his spouse. It goes back to his family. So if there were male children, if she had sons, then it would pass on to them. But if it was daughters, nope. Wouldn't go to them. It goes to the male side. The only way that it would pass to the daughters is if the daughters married someone within their tribe and then they were like, okay, they're within the tribe, then they can have it. And you can read about all of this stuff back in Numbers. Numbers 27 gives you the kind of rights as to how things go. You can read about it in the book of Ruth or just plug in widow when you're doing like a word study and it'll pull up all this stuff for you. Now the prophets and the wisdom texts back in the Old Testament, they stood up for widows. Jesus stood up for widows. The New Testament stood up for widows. But you know what? This wasn't always practiced. So here's this judge who gave her justice because he doesn't want to be bothered. Doesn't want to be bothered anymore, even though initially he was refusing to give her justice. But you know, she just keeps on coming back and keeps on coming back. And the widow finally received justice, not because the judge cared about her. Not because he had compassion about her. Not because he wanted to see justice through. It's because he didn't want to be bothered anymore. She's like, oh fine, just go, just do it. Here, 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 take your land, okay? Fine, take your land. Verse 6, And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says. Now what did the unrighteous judge say? He said, I will give her justice. I will give her justice. The reason why he gave an insignificant woman justice is nothing noble. It's not because like, I stand for justice and this woman's being cheated, therefore give her her thing. She received justice because he didn't want to be bothered. Verses 7 and 8, And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? 
Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? If an unjust judge can come to the conclusion of serving justice based off of not wanting to be bothered anymore by an insignificant person, how much more will the judge, God, who is full of compassion, who who is a God of justice, who is a God of righteousness, carry out justice for those that he actually loves dearly, not some insignificant person? And so verse 7 ends with this question, will he delay long over them? Jesus instructed his disciples in verse 1 to pray and not lose heart. And here in verse 7, the question, will he delay long over them, is a rhetorical question. It's referring to God who will not lose heart. Jesus instructed them not to lose heart. He's already saying, like, God's not going to lose heart. In the Greek text, it's referring to God's patience. God's long-suffering, His slowness to anger, His slowness to punish. That's what He's saying within that question. And just as we are to pray and not lose heart between our cries to God and His response to us, Jesus reminds us that God does not lose heart between the cry of His children and His own response. He does not lose heart. There are often times that we don't understand God's timing. There's a lot of times I don't understand God's timing. And while we're thinking one thing, perhaps God has other things in the works. And while we get impatient with God's timing, He's using it to to strengthen His disciples through uh, the, the very difficulty that they're hoping to pray themselves out of. I'm extremely confident that God answers our prayers. I, I'm so confident about that. You know, I, I've been I've been praying for my mother's salvation for decades. Decades. I've been praying for that woman. I have no idea what's taking so long. None. I mean, God, are you serious? Over 25 years, nothing? I've been praying for this person for over 25 years. But I'm faithful the Lord will answer my prayers because she's still alive. Right? She's not gone. So that in my patience and in my long suffering, that I will truly learn what prayers mean because I'm pouring my heart out to God. God, come on. 25 years. And, and I submit my will to God and I, and I seek God's face and I sit in His presence and I feel the peace of God. That even though it's taken so long, I feel the peace of God. That it's not in my prayers being immediately answered that I get that peace. It's in the process of decades of praying that I know that God is faithful to me. That I feel the peace of God in the matter of my mother's salvation. Not because my peace is pending on my mother's decision. But because my peace is reliant on God who I know hears me when I pour my heart out to Him, whose will is perfect compared to my imperfect will, who invited me to seek His face and open the door to me communing with Him, who desires to invest time with me because He loves me and He wants to be with me. I feel the peace of God in my life in matters like my mother's salvation. I still feel it because He has mysteriously imparted that to me in 
decades of prayer. That prayer might not be answered, but he's answered a ton others. He's there. He's answering my prayers. And many of the the significant things that we deal with in life are like this, aren't they? They take patience. They they, they take long-suffering. You take a look at a career. Any of you who have a successful career or those of you who are wanting a successful career, if you have a successful career, remember to tithe. But um, you, you didn't get that overnight. Right? You didn't get that overnight. It took years of preparation to get you to where you're at. It took you years of study. And some of you are like, no, I didn't study. I didn't even go to college and I have a successful business. You went to grammar school. You went to middle school. You went to high school. You at least had 12 years of study. So it took years, and in some cases it took college, in some cases it took post-college, it, and it takes many years of experimentation and learning what works and what doesn't work. You want to be a successful athlete? Don't follow my regimen. But it doesn't just happen, right? You, you want to be a successful athlete? You don't just come out of the womb and say, like, sign me a professional contract. I'm ready. Put me in, coach. Where's my diaper? It doesn't happen like that. It takes years of development, right? Practicing as a child and getting coaching and working on technique and conditioning. It takes a long time to be a world-class athlete. You don't just become one. And that's just how it is with most things in life. That girl that you want to marry, you guys, it takes time to figure out if she's who you really want to be with the rest of your life. Right? The second date is built on the first date. And if there is no second date, there you go. <laughs> Get the hint. No second date, don't keep on, oh, wait, 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 please, please, move on. Come on. If there's a second one, way to go. Go for that third. Come on, keep going. So why does God take a while to do the things that He does? I think it's partly to teach us things like patience and and long-suffering, but I also think a large part of it is because of His grace and His mercy. Think about this. If God worked immediately, just being a God of justice and He worked immediately, wouldn't you and I be in a lot of trouble? Oh, man. Right? We would be in a lot of trouble. I am so sinful. I have such an unforgiving spirit about me. Like if you cross me, if you do something wrong to me, it is really hard for me to extend forgiveness. Just just a confession. So just don't wrong me, please. It's going to cause me to sin. But it's a really hard thing for me. I'm so sinful. If if he executed that justice immediately, I'd be dead like thousands of times over. I mean, thank God. And he's so gracious and merciful to me to extend me more time to work on this issue, which I'm getting better at. I'm growing. I'm growing. So it is with my mother. He's been so gracious and merciful to us to to give more time to her so that the gospel is shared more with her, so that her heart and her mind can be softened to receive her at some point. Oh my gosh, how hard can this ground be? She's like titanium heart. I mean, oh my gosh. And then, like my father-in-law, some of you are aware of this. He has pancreatic cancer. 
and we haven't been given any prognosis about this, but we were told at the beginning of this that the average pancreatic cancer patient lives about six to eight months after surgery. And some of you were here when we first disclosed this to you, and and I don't know if you remember this, but at that time I was teaching you about the fig tree, how you dig around it, and then there's somebody that is an intercessor and then comes up to the person and says, like, give us another year. Give us more time. We're going to work this. We're going to prune this. We're going to put fertilizer in this. We're going to do this, and we're going to build it back up. God has heard our prayers about that. He's lived for 11 months. They're supposed to only live six to eight months. He's going on month 11. He's not doing well, though. But he is going on month 11. He has heard my wife's prayer, my prayer, my children's prayers every night that we're praying for Grandpa's salvation, that he comes to know Jesus. Please give him more time to do that. He's heard that. And I praise God that he has listened to those prayers, that we've been praying to him so that we can live the gospel before him, that we can share the gospel with him as the Holy Spirit leads us. We're not going there every night and bombarding him with the gospel and saying blah, 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 blah. We're just praying for discernment and wisdom. Lord, when do we speak these things? When do we say these things? Because he has told my wife, don't ever talk about those things with me. But he hasn't told me not to. He hasn't told my children not to. So we still got like four bullets Right, so we're we're just we're just playing it along and praying for discernment. When's that going to be and stuff like that, and so that we can share that before he dies. God has heard our prayers. He's so faithful. He's so gracious. He's so merciful. He could have been the average statistic. Six to eight months, gone, and not have had as many opportunities that he has had with us for the past several months. Jesus could come back tonight, and that's it. That's it. No more chances, no more opportunities for people like my mother, people like my father-in-law. Thank God for his grace. Thank God for his patience. Thank God for his long-suffering. So Jesus gives us this parable so that we pray and we don't lose heart. No doubt the early disciples took this lesson to heart when they suffered persecution for their faith and they were killed for their faith. That they looked to God often in prayer and how often do we pray? Is it just at mealtimes? Is it just going to bed? Where is your heart in relation to prayer? And so sometimes you guys are wondering, or you may be wondering, man, why do I have so many difficulties? Why am I going through such hard stuff? Maybe the Lord is being so gracious to you so that you approach Him in prayer instead of just living your life in isolation and independence, not relying on God. Now, some of you may struggle with the thought that those who don't know God prosper while you're a follower of Jesus and you find yourself just kind of like trolling on the bottom of the ocean with picking up like crumbs and stuff like that. People who don't know God seem to be, you know, enjoying life while the believer just endures life. Let me share with you a psalm. It's Psalm 73. It's 28 verses, but just kind of hone in on what the psalmist is writing. A psalm of Asaph. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, 
My feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. Wouldn't that be awesome to have a fat and sleek body? I'm just saying. I want to be fat and sleek. I mean, that'd be cool. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease, They increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. How many of you feel like that? For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discern their end. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is my strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. You know, some things about God are mysterious. Some things I flat out don't get it. But I am in complete faith that I'll understand at the proper time, when the time is right. And I I don't know why my mom isn't saved. I don't know why my father-in-law isn't saved. Even though death is knocking at the door, it is there. I am beyond understanding. I have no clue. I don't understand why my grandfather-in-law didn't accept Jesus, even though I was with him practically every day in hospice. Almost every day in hospice until the day he died. Right by his bedside. That's where I was working. That's where I studied for my sermons. That's where I did some counseling calls. That's where I did some pastoral care. Right next to him. For months. I have no idea how someone can say I don't need that. I'm beyond understanding. I have no clue. But I have faith in God's reasons. And sometimes I think, Jesus... Man, when are you coming back? Things are pretty bad. You know, things are pretty bad here. A lot of kids are getting murdered here out in these streets. 
There's a lot of kids being trafficked for sex on International Boulevard. What, what's going on here? When, when are you coming back? And other times I'm hoping for more time because there are so many who don't believe that their sin is a death sentence and that only Jesus can save them. And so sometimes I find myself praying like, God, not yet. Let me just bring a few more. Let me, let me try to get a few more. But whenever that time comes, that Jesus comes, it's going to be great. And it's going to be in God the Father's perfect timing. And I'm not praying for any specific time other than giving me more time to share His Gospel. But I'm not going to complain if He chooses to come tonight. Thank God! Right? But what are we praying for? Uh, What are we praying for? Really? Next week, we're going to take a look at another parable where Jesus further illustrates prayer using a Pharisee and a tax collector as the main characters. But just to give you a quick glance at it, you look at verse 13. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. See, pride and arrogance won't bring you to a place where you will ask God for mercy and you won't admit that you're a sinner. Pride and arrogance will lead you away from the cross. It will lead you away from the grave where Jesus resurrected. It will lead you to your grave. It will lead you to judgment. And if you don't know any other prayer, take away this one, Luke chapter 18, verse 13. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. If you take away any prayer, take that one away. Because that's the perfect one to start with. That one opens up your relationship with God. The other things can happen. God will answer a sinner's prayer of repentance and, and the desire to be a follower of Jesus. We ought always to pray. And not lose heart. Let's pray. Father, how so many of us have not taken seriously the gift that you've offered us to communicate with you and how you minister to us. It's one of the primary channels of how you communicate with us. And yet some of us treat it as another appliance or a device or just another thing, tool. Lord, may we cherish prayer. May we really understand it. May we be humble enough to approach others who are a little bit more mature in the faith if we don't know about it and ask them to teach us how to pray. Lord, I pray that we would be a house of prayer here, that people would pour out their hearts to you here and then ultimately move to finding peace. In Jesus' name, amen.